All right, all of everything you guys just mentioned are definitely components of soul care. We could uh, intertwine the two words, soul care or biblical counseling, which is what I do. But I'm using the word soul care more so because it's not, uh, it doesn't sound so exclusive. A lot of times when people hear biblical counseling, they think it's, um, they think that it's something to do, uh, something like what I do in an each week, each day, where I'm sitting down privately with someone in an office and counseling them on a very formal and professional basis. Uh, But biblical counseling is much broader than that. Biblical counseling encapsulates everything you guys just mentioned. Let me read a definition that emerged. I did a a study with some of the top experts in Christian soul care that span the spectrum of Christian psychology, Christian counseling, nuthetic counseling, and biblical counseling. Uh, There were about 25 of them. Some of the most uh, 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 esteemed guys out there, and we all had to work together to come up with a consensus on what is soul care and what is biblical counseling. And here was the definition that that gleaned most consensus: biblical soul care endeavors to build a relationship with another person in which God's work of change can thrive. It is therefore dependent on the Word of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of Jesus Christ. It seeks to build a contextualized understanding of the counselee, past and present, and will view that data through the lens of Scripture. The biblical counselor rests in the knowledge that he is not the agent of change, but is, in that to- but is a tool in the hands of the one who is. The biblical counselor does not ignore physical issues or emotional information, but seeks to integrate them into a holistic understanding of the person and where change needs to take place. The biblical counselor is not adversarial in his or her relationship to the psychologies of the culture, but examines research and insights through the lens of Scripture. In his work with the counselee, the biblical counselor always recognizes the sovereignty of God, the transformative grace of Christ, and the insight-giving and conviction-producing ministry of the Holy Spirit. In all of this, the biblical counselor sees himself or herself not as an isolated instrument of change, but one whose work is intimately connected to God's primary tool of change, the church, which is where we all come in, with all of its God-ordained duties, structures, and means of grace. So over the coming weeks, we're going to dig into each aspect of that definition and try to go deep in understanding what that actually means and how that applies to us as believers. Um, But to set the stage, I do want to talk about the history of soul care within the church. It is something that is is becoming more common among congregations, but I would say back in 1999, 2000, when I was doing my internship, if I was going around churches here in the DFW area talking about biblical counsel and how all Christians are called to do this, the, the vast majority of pastors and church staff that I would talk to knew nothing about soul care, knew nothing about biblical counseling and if they did know something about biblical counseling it they it was they had they viewed it fairly negatively um and so i would say in the last five years or so five to eight years there's been a trend within the church where soul care is now gaining momentum again so now i can go back to those same churches many of them have soul care ministries many many of them have um biblical counseling ministry within the church that's kind of part of the dna of the the congregation um, so there's been an ebb and flow here. When, when we talk about soul care, where do you guys think the idea of biblical counsel and soul care originated? What would, what, where do you think it came from? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Excellent. 
definitely. Paul talks a lot about one another, you know, doing things. Yes, he does. Yes. And, and we're going to go back to the very beginning um, where we find Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and there is God uh, choosing to speak to humanity. <clears throat> I love Francis Schaeffer um, and his, one of his books is He is There and He is Not Silent. So we, we serve a God who created a universe and chose to speak. And he chose to speak to Adam and Eve and that what he said to them was really the first counsel ever heard by humanity. Um, biblical soul care or biblical counseling began at the beginning with the first two humans God ever created. My friend um, John Henderson, who wrote our training materials for the Association of Biblical Counselors, says this, Godly or biblical counsel began in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and then God counseled Adam concerning the blessed course of life and the cursed one. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. The counsel of God was truthful. His word for human life and loving. His counsel revealed himself to Adam and maintained a right relationship with Adam. So this thing that you and I are talking about, something that I'm excited to see so many people in here interested in, is something that God instituted at the very beginning. Uh, him speaking into the hearts of his people, uh, giving them guidance and counsel uh, to the path of life and goodness, revealing himself in a very intimate way. Um, biblical counsel was also affirmed over and over in the Old Testament, and the counsel is always centered in the character and in the wisdom of God. And, and you could go through the Old Testament and find countless passages, um, but here are just a couple. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then one of my favorite passages, which I think is profoundly diagnostic to the human condition, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 9. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the one who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in a year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. That is an amazing passage that talks about um, what produces life or what produces death within the soul. Um, what was that passage? Jeremiah 17.5-9. And you see in the very beginning he gives us this amazing picture of what occurs when we choose to put trust in flesh. And that could be putting our trust in another human being or that could even be putting trust in our own mindset away from the wisdom of God. And when we anchor our trust in flesh in any way, form, or fashion, it produces something psychologically. It has a psychological impact. Um, and he gives the picture of a thorny shrub in the desert. Um, <clears throat> this person can be in the midst of a lot of wonderful and beautiful blessings, but cannot see it uh, because they are trusting in the wrong thing. But on the other side, when we learn throughout life, throughout our lifespan, what it means to trust in the Lord, 
something very different occurs within our hearts. Um, we don't become dying shrubs in the desert. We become these fruit-bearing trees. <coughs> and it's interesting, the prophet Jeremiah doesn't say that we're no longer in a desert or that we're no longer in a hot place. He actually says uh, when the drought is there and when the heat is on, as we learn to root our hearts into God and trusting Him, uh, not a single leaf will even wither on our tree. So there's something profound there that working out in our life, this life of faith, that when we're facing difficulty, whether it's relational difficulty, uh, financial difficulty, emotional difficulty, the fundamental question that we always have to come to is where are we rooting our trust? Uh, where are we, are, are we rooting our trust even in our own thought processes, which can often be deceitful? He mentions here really the, the thing that creates all the confusion at the very end of this. He says the heart is deceitful above, above all things who can know it. Only God ultimately. But a lot of what we will be talking about as far as soul care goes is the human heart. Because even as believers, though sin no longer holds power over us in terms of um, dominating our hearts, we still have present sin within us that we have to deal with. And that sin tends to deceive us. Uh, we also see the narrative of soul care in the New Testament. Um, Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then a passage that we'll dig in uh, one week, we'll, we may, maybe next week, we'll spend almost the whole time talking about this particular passage. But Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. <clears throat> and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I would say that's probably... Uh, one of the most important um, uh, calls in Scripture that calls us into the work of soul care. Uh, in this very passage, he, he infers that all saints are called to be equipped for the work of ministry. Now, maybe not pastoral ministry, um, but one another ministry. Uh, we all are called to that. We're all called to love one another uh, and to encourage one another in the Word. And he tells us that this work is centered in building up each other. Um, for too long, the church has, has bought into this idea, and I do see it changing, but it's something that I call outsourcing the soul. So the protocol for the last 20, 30 plus years, 40 years, was if you have somebody that's dealing with emotional problems or if you have someone dealing with mental problems or, or relational problems, you have to outsource them to a professional that knows what they're doing. And that was almost the exclusive means by which a lot of pastors operated um, and a lot of churches operated. Um, but 
there's really not even enough, even if we did follow that protocol there's not enough professionals in the country to deal with all of the hurt that is going on in the hearts of people within the body of Christ we need each other and that's why it's so important for us as a church to to come to this call because um, we just need one another um, and we want to make sure that we're doing what God has called us to do in loving our neighbor. Uh, this passage tells us that the telos or the final end of this work of soul care is maturing in Christ in conformity to his image. And I would say uh, when, we, when we talk about true mental health, uh, when we talk about uh, what does that really mean, what does that look like, uh, we see it in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. In my opinion, <clears throat> to try to define mental health outside of God is impossible. Um, and if you go out and to all of the different secular uh, websites and see how they define mental health, it's very vague. We don't really have, we can't really put a finger on what that means. But we as believers have the perfect image of mental health, and it's realized in the person of Jesus. And so no matter what the problem is, no matter what emotional struggle is going on, no matter what the problem may be, anytime we're engaging others in the work of ministry, in the work of one-on-one, one-another type ministry, always have in mind that the ultimate goal there is not, not exclusively symptom relief or problem solving. We can do that, and those things are important. But the ultimate goal when we're ministering the Word of God to others is to ask ourselves the question, is what we're doing um, pushing this person to reflect the image of Christ as they're dealing with whatever crisis they're facing? Because that's the ultimate goal of soul care, is sanctification. Can you say that another time, maybe in different terms? What you just said, but maybe in different words. The ultimate goal of soul care is that we are participating in the work of sanctification, uh, that we are instruments in the hands of the Lord, uh, depending upon the Holy Spirit, that whatever we're ministering into the lives of others, that our goal is that they would image Jesus Christ more and more throughout that process. Um, this work should build our understanding of God and His Word so that we are not drawn away by messages and philosophies that counter the wisdom of God. I see so often in my office. Um, by the way, I, for those that you don't that don't know, I, I'm a licensed professional counselor, so I do counsel um, professionally, uh, and I have a practice here in Fort Worth, and I see lots of people who are struggling. And one of the things that is very common when when people are in a low spot is, you know, I, there are a lot of messages out there. There are a lot of narratives out there as to what why what is wrong with you and what will make you right. What's the answer to this problem? Uh, we, uh, we live and breathe psychology without even knowing it in our culture. Um, it's everywhere. And so everyone walks into my office with their own theory of what's going on and what's wrong. And uh, here's the answer. Uh, and often it's, it's influenced far more by secularism or humanistic ideas than it is the Word of God. And so a part of what, what Paul is saying here is uh, soul care and being equipped in the work of counsel in, in one regard is to help people not be drawn away by in, in the midst of pain by messages that are not from the Lord so that we're not tossed back and forth by all of these different 
uh, like waves in the sea by all of these different messages. And then the work calls us to speak the truth in love to one another so as to promote health and growth within the body of Christ. So we're called to speak to each other. We're called to listen to each other. We're called to love each other. And if we can ever, as a body of Christ here, I think we do a, a pretty good job here, but I know the leadership wants to see this expand, but we want to be a culture where um, you don't have to hide your struggle, where it's okay to not be okay, um, but to reach out so that we can become uh, more okay in the process. Yeah, yeah it's possible uh, when uh, the environment is like the way our church is, and Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the freedom to struggle. Uh, one, of, one of my earlier pastors said, when we become Christians, we're not free from struggle, but we become free to struggle because of what we have in Jesus Christ. And um, soul care will flourish most in a church culture that adheres to that idea. Because we're not all hiding. And if you're struggling, whether it's a sin issue or a suffering issue... Uh, the gospel would not have us hide. The gospel would have us run to one another for help in an ideal situation. So we see in the Old and New Testaments here, and we're just barely scratching the surface in terms of what is there in the Old and New Testaments, uh, very much about one another ministry, very much about the counsel of God's word. Um, the early church fathers recognized the importance of soul care as a, as a, a very important function of the body of Christ. And this is where we're going to just see a rich heritage in what we're talking about today. Uh, St. Augustine introduced his uh, theology of soul care uh, way, way back. And historian Morton Hunt says that upon upon Augustine introducing his version of biblical soul care, his ideas dominated the arena of psychology for eight centuries. And this was from a theologian. This was far, far before Sigmund Freud ever came on the scene Um, and Augustine was a man who uh, searched the scriptures to understand the very same questions that psychology would be asking centuries later. Who are we? Why are we doing what we're doing? And how do we change? If you've never read it, uh, read Augustine's Confessions. It's his own narrative of, of transformation as he warred with his heart for a long time and one day experienced the transformative grace of God in his life. And it's very transparent. It's something, you know, he wasn't hiding his flaws. He, he put it out there for the world to see. And when you read it, you're captured by that moment in the garden when finally uh, the power of the Holy Spirit captures him and his life is changed forever. Um, another church father, Cassian, said this, As is the case with the most skilled physicians who not only heal present ills, but also confront future ones with shrewd expertise 
and forestall them with prescriptions and salutary potions, so also these true physicians of the souls destroy with a spiritual conference as with some heavenly medicine, maladies of the heart just as they are about to emerge, not allowing them to grow in the minds of young men, but disclosing to them both the causes of the passions that threaten them and the means of acquiring health. This was a norm uh, in the early, early church. Uh, way back then, they coined this phrase, the physician of the soul. And they weren't talking about licensed professionals. They were talking about people in the body of Christ. Um, Rebecca Condendike de Young, who is a professor of philosophy at Calvin College, she says this of the church fathers. The ancients and medievals sought this sort of self-knowledge as part of the ethical life. As is clear from the inscription at Delphi, Know Thyself, and the mission of Aquinas' Dominican order, namely, the care of souls. Moving forward to the reformers, uh, they also spoke into the arena now dominated by secular psychology. Martin Luther has written, uh, wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. If you've never read it, it's an awesome read. And um, it's all about, in my opinion, it's a theology of motivation. Why do we do what we do? And it's very saturated with um, Reformed theology in terms of the will not ultimately being free, as we often understand it, but that the will is enslaved by what it wants, that it's enslaved by de de desires. Um, and taking a very high view of Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Luther is basically saying that uh, we are enslaved by sin through and through, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The will doesn't even have the ability to seek God. It doesn't want to do that until the grace of God awakens us. And he says this, When God works in us, the will is changed under the sweet influence of the Spirit of God. And uh, we'll dig into that a lot more when we get to human nature in a few weeks. But he's touching on uh, the will. And uh, up to this very present day, some of the the most esteemed scholars, for instance, at Harvard University, there's a professor up there named Steven Pinker. I love to read him. Um, and he's, he believes that, that his research and his colleagues' research at some, someday will really eliminate the need to talk about the will at all uh, because everything is sort of already programmed in us on a biological basis. So the will is still something that's very much at the forefront of psychological research. But here we have Martin Luther uh, talking about it in a very different way. He's, talking, he's coming at, at it from a theological vantage point. Um, another great reformer, John Calvin, in his Institutes, says this, Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. So let me read that one more time, and I want you to think... Why is this a significant quote as it regards uh, developing an understanding of human nature, which is really what the world of psychology lives to do? Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. Why is that such a significant statement? <clears throat> Mm -hmm. and, um, as human beings we can't get to the bottom of who we are um, without understanding who made us 
Yes. And I think that's the intersection of of the secular psychological world. Yes. They want answers outside. Yes. And some of their answers are <coughs> right because they really do still point to the mm-hmm. creator. But true. Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. You know, so often we think of the creator <coughs> strictly in the physical creation. Mm-hmm. And if you dig into the emotional creation, yeah, yeah that goes even deeper. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. I think <coughs> we often convince ourselves we're okay mm-hmm. and that we've got life managed or um, something under control or we can grin and bear or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when we look at the face of God and we see his perfection and his holiness mm-hmm. and then we look back at ourselves and we realize how broken and desperately we need the gospel um, mm-hmm. it allows us to to be broken and admit to need and ask for help and um, sometimes it's, it's hard it's easier to protect yourself from that if you're just never looking upon that holy face of the Father it's great it's excellent. Realize the extent of fallenness. The more I know God, the more wretched I see myself as. Yes. That has been my experience. It's great. It also puts before us the goal mm-hmm. of driving toward you know, yes. His image. Yes. Return to that. Be redeemed and return to that. Be transformed into that image. It's excellent. It's excellent. Um. Yeah, you guys hit the bullseye on all of that. It, it, it's really in, impossible to to know ourselves at, at the deepest levels and where it really counts if we don't begin with God. And in a materialist world, which is where the, the field of psychology has really blossomed, um, it, it's the other way around, really, when you read the literature. God, uh, they began with man, and then from man uh, emerged God. Uh, God was has been basically deemed a construct that humanity developed as a means of either survival or social control. Um, so if we don't start with God, we get things really backwards and we miss a lot. And not that psychology doesn't... It's lots of research out there that is extremely valuable. Um, but even when we read that stuff, we have to, we have to read it through the lens of, of Scripture or we ourselves could, could get off track. Um, Moving forward to the Puritans, um, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, and he said this, The choice of the mind never departs from that which, at that time, and with respect to the direct and immediate objects of that decision of the mind, appears most agreeable and pleasing, all things considered. And what he's saying there is the will is always going to pursue what it wants most in a given moment, all things considered. Um, So he's again... And, and some would say that Jonathan Edwards is the most brilliant guy born in America um, theologically and he's trying to understand who are we and what makes us tick and what motivates us and why do people do certain things in their lives and, and he, he sought the, the scriptures to understand this and this was long before the formal schools of psychology were birthed uh, he was asking these questions and he was getting uh, he was getting far down the road in really producing a pretty complex understanding of what makes people tick. Um, he further says this, The author of, hu- of human nature has not only given affections to men, but has made them very much the spring of men's actions. 
Such is man's nature that he is very inactive any otherwise than he is influenced by some affection, either love or hatred, desire, hope, fear, or some other. These affections we see to be the springs that set men along in all of the affairs of life and engage them in all their pursuits. These are the things that put men forward and carry them along in all their worldly business and especially are men excited and animated by these in all affairs wherein they are earnestly engaged. So he looked a lot at the affections. There's a book out there called Religious Affections. But man, he, he's when I'm studying psychology, I'm seeing a lot of parallels in what the secular guys were saying as to what Jonathan Edwards was saying. John Owen, another uh, Puritan, said this, Now self-healers, or men that speak peace to themselves, do commonly make haste. They will not tarry. They do not hearken what God speaks. But on they will go to be healed. Kind of like what we hear in our culture. It's all about the self-help stuff. But that's first and foremost. I need to feel better. Life needs to get easier. And Owen is saying, you know, that's, that's typically how people go about things of this nature. But he says, Which is worst of all, it amends not the life. It heals not the evil. It cures not the distemper. When God speaks peace, it guides and keeps the soul that it may turn not again to folly. When we speak it ourselves, the heart is not taken off the evil. Nay, it is the readiest course in the world to bring a soul into a trade of backsliding. In God speaking peace, there comes along so much sweetness and such a discovery of his love as is a strong obligation on the soul no more to deal perversely. So, just this idea of uh, abiding in the Lord. Uh, this is very countercultural in my world where when people come to me, they, they need the quick answers and we need to get going. And we need to, f- to feel better yesterday. And I want people to feel better. Um, <clears throat> I don't like to see people suffering at all. But we do have to bring into the picture the idea that there is a sovereign God that is presiding over every detail, including struggle. And part of the process, at times, cure doesn't emerge because the Lord is at work. And the Lord is going deeper. And the Lord is calling us more and more to himself. And we are seeing, he's giving us opportunity to see him in new and powerful ways through our suffering. We live in a society where, you know, we have to push back the suffering as quickly as we can. But a biblical worldview understands that suffering has profound, redemptive attributes, that it's often in the suffering where the the transformation of God's grace is most powerful. And that's what he's saying here, that we sometimes get in such a rush to fix things that we forget to abide in the Lord, let him do his work. And when we we do that, uh, true change occurs, true peace begins to develop. It kind of goes back uh, to the, the passage in Jeremiah that even though heat may be bearing down on us in the form of trouble and strife and difficulty, that does not determine that we have to be anxious and miserable. Uh, according to that passage, as we learn to abide in God and trust in God in the heat, we can still be these fruit-bearing trees where our leaves are not even withering. There's something deep about there. There's something very spiritual about that. Kelly Capick, who has written an awesome book on Owens and his view of sin and sanctification, says this, Using classic faculty psychology categories of the mind, the will, and the affections, Owen consistently attempts to present a holistic perspective of the the human person, and this informs his view of sin and sanctification. And then Sinclair Ferguson uh, says this about the Puritans. 
The Puritans were pastors and physicians of the soul, but they understood that the basic counseling sessions of every Christian's life should take place in the context of the exposition of the scriptures. So just in that cursory review, uh, we see as a body of Christ in our present day that we have a very rich heritage, really dating back to the Garden of Eden, uh, that counsel belongs in the body of Christ and that we are supposed to be a part of that. Um, so we don't need to shun back to cultural norms that would say, whoa, 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 you know, take a step back. You're not a trained professional. You're actually being called by God to take part in this kind of work. And obviously, we all have limitations, and that's a part of soul care, that when you know you're beyond your limits, don't pretend that you have the answers and start guiding people in areas where you have blind spots. Reach out to someone else. I have to do that all the time. Uh, bounce something off of, of a colleague to make sure I'm seeing something correctly or that I'm not missing something, or maybe it's an area that I haven't worked with very much. I need other people too. So that's a part of soul care as well. Um, very quickly, uh, we'll look uh, at a trend that happened uh, in the history of our church where soul care sort of took a back seat, almost became invisible in the church. Um, and we'll just hit these fairly quickly for time's sake. Um, in 1859, Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species. And in that book, he said this, In the distant future, I see open fields for far more important researches. Psychology will be based on a new foundation. Light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. So Charles Darwin even knew as he was making these discoveries that the impact was not just going to be in the realm of of biology and the, the formal sciences, but that it was going to revolutionize our understanding of psychology, which up to his day was very influenced by theological ideas. Um, in, in the 1860s, uh, the guy that many refer to as the father of psychology, Wilhelm Wundt, uh, opened his experimental uh, laboratory. Uh, experimental psychology was officially born. And his views were heavily influenced by Darwin's ideas. In 1882, Frederick Nietzsche, looking around at what was going on in the culture and in society, uh, made his infamous statement that God is dead um, and that we now have to take the place of God and figure this out for ourselves. Uh, that was in 1882. In the 1890s, Sigmund Freud hit the scene. Psychoanalysis is founded. Uh, it was a psychology rooted in a profound materialist, humanist presupposition. And it began to flourish like never before in Western culture. And if you have ever read much of Sigmund Freud, uh, a big mission of his was to replace the church, to replace the pastor. They wanted to become the new physicians of the soul, um, those who embraced psychoanalysis. And then later on in the 1940s, as psychology had gone through this huge... Uh, growth spurt uh, due to modernism where um, the idea was if you can't measure it under a microscope or measure it by some statistical means then it's really not valuable to the sciences and so spirituality was booted out of the world of psychology with Abraham Maslow in the 1940s a new psychology he formed a new psychology he was reacting actually to Freud's determinism the determinism that is found in psychoanalysis um, and he created what is called third force psychology or humanistic psychology. And here's what he said. When the philosophy of man, his nature, 
his goals, his potentialities, his fulfillment changes, then everything changes. And so here we had this beautiful history within the body of Christ. Uh, scholars seeking to understand the human heart from a biblical vantage point. Modernism hit. Spirituality was pushed to the side and things radically began to change in terms of how society viewed humans. And Abraham Maslow was very, uh, very observant in his analogy. When the philosophy of man, his nature and his goals and his potentials, when that changes at a fundamental level, which did occur uh, with Darwin's evolution, and then what came from that, then everything changes. Um, during this time of modernism, the church um, failed. It became silent. Uh, the church was basically told, you guys are, and this is where uh, the tripartite understanding of humanity really gained a lot of momentum against the church in that uh, the, the church was told, the pastor, you're for the spirit, the professional is for the soul, and uh, physicians are for the body. So they split that up in many segments of, of uh, the discipline. And so the, the pastor sort of fell into that. There were also a lot of things going on uh, theologically. Uh, liberal theology was trying to take over, so a lot of the conservative seminaries really had to focus on those battles, and the realm of soul care and counseling fell through the cracks. Uh, there was a guy named Anton Boyson in the 19, uh, late 1920s who had had several nervous breakdowns, uh, went to churches and was looking for help for his psychological struggles, uh, went to a number of churches, could find no one to help him. No one. And he, he made this call in, 19, in the 1930s um, that really began a new, a new trend in soul care. It seems truly an astounding situation that a group of sufferers larger than that to be found in all other hospitals put together, a group whose difficulties seem to lie for the most part in the realm of character rather than that of organic disease, should be so neglected by the church notwithstanding the fact that the church has always been interested in the care of the sick and that the Protestant churches of America have been supporting 380 or more hospitals, they are giving scarcely any attention to the maladies of the mind. That was the 1930s. Uh, from the 1930s to a large degree uh, to the 1950s, the church was really silent in this, in this not, if not silent, very weak. Um, Secular psychology flourished while the evangelical church remained virtually silent on the issues. Uh, one of my favorite guys, I think he's one of the most brilliant in biblical counseling, David Pallison said this of this time, the church of Christ lost her heartland, the understanding and the cure of souls. Um, not long after that, uh, the, pres the former president of the American Association of Psychology recognized what was going, in the, going on in the church he was very disturbed by the fact that the church had basically just handed over soul care to the secular arena. And this was the former president of the APA. And he wrote a book called Psychiatry and Crisis. And in it, he says this, Has evangelical religion sold its birthright for a mess of psychological pot pottage? In attempting to rectify their disastrous early neglect of psychopathology, have the churches and seminaries assimilated a viewpoint and value system more destructive and deadly than the evil they were attempting to eliminate. So this guy who uh, was looking at the landscape was very concerned. And in God's providence, a young student by the name of Jay Adams uh, was in seminary. And when he had to go and do his training, 
He was sent to a psych hospital, and guess who he had to train under? O. Hobart Mauer, who was the guy that, uh, a former president of the APA. And in God's providence, uh, Mauer began to work with Adams. And Jay Adams, in 1970, wrote a book called Competent to Counsel, where he called the church and the pastor back to this work. And if you read Jay, you've got to take him in context. He, he was pretty hard, uh, pretty, pretty direct in the way he brought things about. I know Jay on a personal level. He's one of the sweetest guys I've ever met. But uh, he, was, he was in a battle. The church wasn't doing any kind of counseling. And he came in the picture and said, hey, guys, we've got to wake up. And that birthed the, 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 uh, the, the new modern uh, biblical counseling movement or soul care movement. And so now today we find ourselves as a part of that history right here in this class. Um, uh, I want to I want to end with this for you, and then in the coming weeks we're going to dig into uh, God and soul care, uh, human nature and soul care, the church and soul care, um, and hopefully you will glean much from what Scripture has to tell us about who we are and how do we help each other, and how is God a big part of that process. But I want you to see yourself in that that stream of history going all the way back to creation. This is a beautiful thing. We're part of this beautiful story of redemption. And God in his providence uh, has, has kept the church through a time when soul care was not happening. And in his grace, he's rebirthed the vision in many places to do this again. And you find yourself in, in that history. So I want to end with the call of our Redeemer to this work. Okay, And I want to give you three questions to, to think about as you go out through, uh, throughout the next week until we meet next week. Um, Matthew 28, 18 and through 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Number one, do you believe this call applies to you? Do you believe it applies to you? Number two, this is a great question I have to ask myself. What insecurities do I have regarding this call? Where do I want to, what, what kind of things make me want to shy away from this? it can feel intimidating and then just a beautiful thought here how did the words and behold I am with you always to the end of the age how do those strike you regarding God's commitment to you in this call to soul care alright how do the words and behold I am with you always to the end of the age how do those strike you in Christ's commitment to you in the work of soul care. We're not doing this alone. Let me pray. Father, what a humbling reality to know that when we consider the history of your church, it is a rich history that calls us to love one another. Not superficially, but truly getting into uh, the details of our lives together to minister to one another, to love one another, to support one another, to encourage one another. And how sweet to know that, that you've called us to this, but not 
to do it alone, but that you have committed to us that you are with us. So I pray that we would all learn more of you and more of ourselves and that you would equip us in this time together to be ministers of your word to the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.